So continuing in the first chapter of the Megillah, we are in the Midrash, page 18.2, and we're discussing the concept that Ahasuerus ruled over 127 countries. So on page 18.2, on the right side of the page, the Midrash says that when the Megillah says that Ahasuerus was the ruler over 127 provinces, Rabbi Yehuda and Abnechemia presented different expositions of this idea. Rabbi Yehuda said that Ahasuerus conquered seven countries that were very difficult to conquer, equal to 20 countries. In other words, they conquered seven that were the equivalency of the difficulty of conquering 20. So when it says 127, it's talking about seven that were equal to 20. Then, subsequently, he conquered 20 provinces that were as difficult to conquer as 100 provinces. That's Rabbi Yudah's opinion, how to understand 127 countries. So the idea of this is that it, we're going to see a little bit in, um, in the later part of the Medrash that we're not necessarily saying that Ahasuerus took possession of every single inhabited country of the world. We're talking about that Ahasuerus was able to conquer the more difficult cities or countries, I should say, to capture. And through capturing a lesser amount of difficult countries, he was able to exercise control over a much larger proportion of countries. That's Rabbi Yudah's opinion. Rabbi Nechemia said that he took attacks of troops from the first seven countries that he conquered. And with those troops, he conquered 20 new provinces. And then he took attacks of troops from the 20 new countries that he conquered and he captured a hundred provinces. I guess for uh, you know, the Jewish minds that are you know, into real estate, you know, it's a couple of buildings and then you know, a couple more buildings and then you know, it's a lot more buildings. So it's a similar concept that by taking a small victory and building it into, leveraging it, I should say, into larger victories is the way that Ahasuerus is able to attain control over many, many countries. To which the Gemara now asks, how does that really work? How is it that you can say that Ahasuerus conquers the entire world by conquering seven, and 20, like how, how does that really work? That that equals the whole world, especially because we're used to the terminology of 127 countries, but earlier parts of the Medrash talked about that there was really closer to 250 inhabited countries in the world. So how is it that by conquering seven and then conquering 20, it's as though Ahasuerus exercises a control, a, a dictatorship over the entire world. So basically, Rabbi Yuda and Rabbi Nechemia have two different opinions, the idea of which is you know, kind of the same. We don't need to go into all the opinions, but basically, if you conquer the harder countries, and the harder countries are sort of a either half circle or a circumference around the other countries, then by conquering the outer countries, it's as though you've conquered all the inner countries, because basically there's no escape. It's very difficult for them to attain or to retain, I should say, their autonomy once the outer countries, especially if the outer countries are more powerful, are conquered. This is what you call strategic military conquests. Or for those of you who, those of us 
we probably played the game of risk once or twice in our lives. We probably know, you know, the exact when you you get those those key border, you know, cities or countries, then you suddenly, you know, are in charge of the whole country. And therefore, what is the insight that the Midrash is offering? So I think that the Midrash is offering uh, a keen insight into the wisdom of Ahasuerus. You know, we shouldn't think of Ahasuerus as though he is a bumbling, um, almost, you know, foolish kind of a monarch, which I think some of us might have that depiction. Later, the, we're probably going to come across a passage in the Midrash that there's an argument in the Talmud if Ahasuerus was smart or if he was foolish. But according to both opinions, he thought he was doing something smart. Right? So in other words, he's trying to employ strategy. And over here, the Midrash is telling us that indeed his global conquest was the result of a strategic plan. And you know, for all of us that are familiar to you know, projects and running businesses, the concept of a strategic plan is very important. Right? And so the way that the Megillah is teaching us that Ahasuerus is a man of strategy is by telling us that it's not just that you know, he inherited a kingdom whereby he was the ruler over 127 countries because that's what daddy did and he inherited, or in this case, that's what Vashti's father did and he inherited. Rather, he himself was part of this entire enterprise of figuring out how to take global conquest of the world. And then just one more point that I want to add to that is ideally global conquest is the way it's at. You know, it's what we call in, um, in modern parlance in the financial world, a monopoly, right? If you're a monopoly, you set the rules, you set the product price, and people have no choice but to buy it, so you're in control. And so this idea that Ahasuerus has a strategic plan that succeeds to give him effective control over the entire populated world tells you what a formidable person, personality, monarch he was. And therefore, I think we can appreciate even more so the incredible influence and effect that Esther and Mordechai ultimately exercise over him and get him to essentially denounce Haman and to embrace and respect and protect Esther and her people. That's, uh, that's I think, the point for now. So basically, the nutshell version of what we're saying is that the, the Midrash is giving us insight into the wisdom and military and political strategic approach that Ahasuerus has, which gives us a greater appreciation for the ultimate victory that's brought about through Mordechai and Esther. Any questions or comments? Okay. So now we're going to move on to the next one. You're going to 24-1, that means 24 page, you know, just say page one on the side, and it's number 17 through 25-1. So we definitely are skipping ahead. And this is kind of a surprising midrash in many ways, but uh, we're going to do it. So I, I forgot in our um, notes to actually come back and put in number 16, which is also on page 24-1. So we're actually going to begin on the left column, which is 24-1, number 16, top left of the page.
So the Megillah says that it was in the third year of his reign that Ahasuerus made a party for all of his officers and his servants, in other words, for all of his loyal fans. He made a party. So Antoninus made a party for Rebbe. Now, this is very relevant, actually, to the Torah reading of last week's parsha and this week's parsha. You should know that when the Torah says that Rivka, in her pregnancy of her two sons, is going to produce two nations that are two monarchs, the understanding is that a paragon example of the two monarchs that Rivka is going to produce are specifically the historical characters that we call Antoninus and Rebbe. Antoninus was a Roman emperor, king, and Rebbe was the leader of the Jewish people, the one who's responsible for actually deciding to write down the summary version of the Mishnah that we have today. Antoninus and Rebbe had many study sessions together. There's many fascinating conversations that are reported in Tractate Sanhedrin and in other places that Antoninus and Rebbe actually uh, studied and many times, several times, Rebbe said, this is what I learned from Antoninus. They, they were actually learning partners. And this is an example of the collaboration that could have existed uh, between Yaakov and Esav and tragically did not come to fruition. But in this case, it, bear, it bore you know, significant fruit. So an episode that happens related to our sentence that Ahasuerus made a party for all of his servants and officers is that the Roman emperor Antoninus prepared a meal for Rebbe, for Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi. He made a party for him, a meal. So the comment that Rebbe had for Antoninus is, maybe you didn't provide oil adequately uh, to be properly prepared for the lamps of our party. Now, just as a very fascinating aside, um, it seems that what Rebbe is saying, listen, we need to make sure that we have good light throughout this meal. I remember hearing from my father many times over the years that a classic distinction between a Jewish party and a Gentile party is that a Jewish party, there's tons of light and very little to drink, meaning alcohol-wise. And at a non-Jewish party, there's tons to drink and very little light. Now, you know, of course, us Jews care about the food. And of course, that's not really the way it is here in the yeshiva. Any of you who have been to my office uh, know that. Um, <laughs> but the point is that uh, it seems that it is a, a Jewish concern to make sure to have plenty of light. So I, Rebbe said to Antoninus, listen, thank you for the party, but did you really make sure that there, the, the, the lamps, right, the, the lights are well attended and that they will be lit uh, properly and they won't smell, you know, for the entire duration of the feast. To which Antoninus said to him, you know, really, like, why should I be involved with that? You know, I mean, after all, I am the king, you know, like, why is that my job? You know, that I should make sure that there's enough light in this party. To which Rebbe said to him, well, maybe the servants will put in polluted oil in the lamps and that'll ruin the meal. To which Antonina said to him, and, and how do you know this? Meaning, how do you know that this is a responsibility that even the king has to make sure that the lamps are well attended, lit, smell properly, etc.? He says, because from our sentence where it says that Ahasuerus made a party, he made the party. 
That means he took responsibility for all the details to, so that the party will come off well. Now, the question, of course, is what is the significance of this teaching? Yeah, it's true. If you don't pay attention to details, things might not go so well, right? So what is the point of all this? Everybody hear my question? Like, well, why do we need to learn this? You know, like this random thing that Antoninus and Rebbe had this discussion about the king should really make sure that the lamps are kindled properly, it's the right kind of oil, etc. So my answer is because when it comes to, and this is very much in line with last week's Torah in, in, on Wednesday and this week's Torah on Wednesday, when it comes to a Jewish party, it's not about just food and drink and satisfying our bellies. It's actually about the experience of connecting and being with another human being and developing a relationship, right? So a Jewish party is not just for the purpose of whatever physical you know, pleasures there are or some just sort of an honor kind of badge that, okay, you know, I went to the king's party ball or whatever it is. It's actually that we want something significant to develop at the party in terms of a relationship, in which case it needs to be a very comfortable place to be, right? A place where people are going to want to hang out and spend time with each other. And that very much depends on the details of the comfortability of the environment. You know, today we would call it the air conditioning and other elements of the party. And Rebbe was telling this to Antoninus because he was saying, listen, in, in Judaism, you know, the idea of getting together and celebrating is not just to have, you know, a good time and to lose consciousness, you know, and, you know, not pay attention to the pains and the problems of the world, but it's actually to cultivate something meaningful. We like to refer to it as, you know, talking Torah at the party. We like to refer to it as, you know, developing ideas, growing in closeness, and, what Rebbe is telling him is that the reason that Achashverosh made a party is because he was trying to win over his constituents. Achashverosh makes this party at, for his, you know, 127 countries because he's trying to become a popular, well-respected, well-thought-of, in-control kind of a ruler. And so Achashverosh made sure that all the details of the party go well. It's not just like, okay, you know what, we're going to throw them a party, let them have a good time, we don't really care what happens after that. No, the whole point is for him to be well thought of and have a relationship and a respect from his constituents. And so that's what Rebbe is telling Antoninus. And, you know, there's no question that that's an undervalued, a sometimes undervalued uh, component of what's supposed to happen in a get together. And it's actually a very, very good paradigm to have for cultivating business relationships. And if the idea of you know, going out to lunch is simply, okay, I'll cover your lunch bill, I'll pay for your meal, you know, okay, that's fine, but that's not really going to get you somewhere. But if the idea is to cultivate a relationship and a closeness with the other person and show them that you pay attention to detail of their experience because you care about them, so now you have a relationship and now you have, you know, a real uh, foundation to build partnership in business. Any questions or comments? Um, 
I might have missed a detail in some of the commentary, but it 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 sounds to me that it it ties in well with um, Pierre Kavos, where it, it says <coughs> it says to to grab on to a Rebbe and to buy your friends. I've heard it uh, discussed in that way that when you find a rabbi that you connect with, you need to grab onto that rabbi, regardless of where they are in the world, because you can always you can always make friends somewhere and you can you know throw nice parties and, and buy your mm-hmm. friends. That's a good uh, point. That's nice. That's a good point. That is a good point. This reminds me of a joke when I came from Romania. Um, starting a small business and everybody told me go to have lunch you have to have lunch with your customers and uh, I had lunch and I said I didn't understand why it's so important to have lunch do you know why productivity in communist country is so low and and, and Canada the productivity is so high it's because of the business lunch things are sold over lunch right Yeah, yeah, that's where a lot of important uh, businesses transact because at the end of the day, business really comes down to trust and and relationships. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Good. So now we're on 17, which is also on page 24, one, number 17. And the sentence says, the army of Persia and Media. And this medrash does a kind of a deep dive on various... uh, amounts of characteristics that are actually disproportionately spread throughout the world. It's a very interesting commentary of the rabbis. So we're going to learn some of what we can from these, but I think, you know, overall, our main lesson from this is that the world has a certain amount of things and not all peoples, not all nationalities are equal to these amounts. That means they're spread disproportionately. So this is what was taught in the name of Rabbi Nasan, that there are 10 measures, 10 portions of immorality in the world, nine in Alexandria and the rest, and, and one in the rest of the world. Now, we don't really know what that means, but it is telling us that when it comes to immorality, there will be an intense concentration among a certain population or a certain region that is different than it is in other places. And look, I mean, you could just look at the United States of America and it's very easy to see that when it comes to states, you know, some states have a much greater proportion of these types of immoral places than other states. And even though it might exist across the country, some have a plethora and some have a few. It's just interesting that it happens that way, right? And then he, the Midrash goes on and says there are 10 portions of wealth in the uh-huh. world. Nine, are we good? A question? Okay. Okay. For JP now. Second, let me just. What do you mean? Get, let me get there, let me get there. Yeah. So there are 10 portions of wealth in the world, nine in Rome and one in the entire world. Now, I don't know if Rome is a euphemism for the Catholic church, but it makes you wonder because there's a tremendous amount of wealth in the Vatican, as we know, as anybody who's ever visited knows as well. Uh, More likely, the Midrash refers to Western civilization. Uh, When you do compare the wealth of Western civilization to the general populations of the countries of the world, 
it is an incredible amount of wealth in the Western civilization. Uh, there's this book by Hans Rosling that I've quoted in the past called Factfulness, where you can see that basically he has four um, categories of wealth. You know, there's like the below poverty line, there's like at the poverty line, there's above the poverty line, and then there's fabulous wealth. Fabulous wealth is something like, I forget now if it's 12 or $20 a day of spending on a person. That's the top tier. Right, so all the first world countries are in that category. And you know, where are most of the first world countries in the world? Under what, so to speak, umbrella, how would you categorize them? And so anyways, the Midrash over here says nine in Rome and one in the rest of the world, which of course is directly related uh, to our parsha because generally we understand that Esav, which is Edom, is basically the father of the Roman Empire. And as we know that, you know, Esav was very much aligned with the power of the physical world. And it makes sense that the wealth would be much uh, concentrated in his region. Okay, then there are 10 portions of poverty in the world, nine in Lod, which is a country, not the city in Israel, and one in the whole world. It's not exactly clear in my mind where Lod is, and I also don't know, and I don't have an answer to this, is that you would assume that if you only have one portion of wealth and nine, you know, nine portion of wealth and one spread across the rest of the world, you would have kind of assumed that the poverty is equal everywhere except for the one portion. But apparently there's a different gradation of poverty versus non-wealth. So it seems like we're talking about, like I mentioned before, a lower uh, kind of standard of poverty than even non-wealth or less wealth in the you know nine places in the world that only have one portion of wealth. Then the Midrash goes on to say that there are 10 portions of witchcraft in the world. Nine are in Egypt and one in the whole world. That's kind of like, you know, there's 10 portions of lying in the world. You know, nine in the media and one everywhere else. You know, it's kind of like a similar idea. There are 10 portions of foolishness in the world, nine among the Yishma'elim and one among the rest of the world. Now that kind of begs the question of what does it mean that, uh, that it's foolishness? So there is a commentary here that describes Yishma'el as foolish because the Torah says that the angel told Hagar that her son will be a wild boar of a man. So in other words, people that are ruled by their animal instincts and passions, they tend to act in foolish manners. And so that's considered to be uh, among the Ishmaeli. Okay, I think we get the idea. The Midrash talks about lice, interestingly. It talks about depravity. It talks about strength. There are nine portions of strength in the world. Nine among the Chaldeans and one among the rest of the world, the Chaldeans should really be the Iraqis. Um, there are 10 portions of a different kind of strength in the world. Uh, in other words, the, the first one that we were just talking about is physical strength among the Chaldeans, but the next one is the, what you would call the might of um, stubborn resolve. And there are nine portions of that among Judeans. I did not say Israelis. I said Judeans, 
and one in the rest of the world. Uh, there are 10 portions of beauty in the world, nine are in Jerusalem and, rest, and one in the rest of the world. Okay, and then you can all read the rest of this. I think one of the reasons that this Midrash exists in our uh, commentary here to the book of Esther, because it seems kind of random to just talk about all the different types of qualities and how they're disproportionately dispersed throughout the world, is because it's important for us as Jews to recognize that we need to have a global perspective on the world. We need to understand the entire world if we are going to be the nation of influence that we need to be. And so what happens obviously from the destruction of the temple and you know, the exile through uh, Bavel, Iraq, Media and Persia is that we are no longer the world dominating power. And part of the message of the book of Esther is that we kind of lost perspective on understanding the globe and understanding, of course, our responsibility in it. And if we want to get back to where we need to be, we really do need to understand the way the world operates. Where the centers of power or various qualities are located so that we can, you know, exert a proper kind of influence and hopefully inspiration over the entire world. That's kind of where I wanted to go with this measures to this point. I'm happy to take any questions or comments and then get to our Devar Torah. I only have about uh, 13 minutes because I need to get to Mincha, but I want to hear if anybody has anything to say, then I'll mention our Devar Torah. I'll just ask a quick question. What? It, it seems a little bit random that this was the commentary of the Midrash in why did it land in 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 this Megillah? Like it, it, it could have been in so many other. Yeah, so I'm just saying because this was really our first loss of global monarchy that we had uh, with the reign of King Solomon, and then you know our influence was really widespread uh, for many many centuries. And the Midrash is telling us that if we want to get back to the Second Temple, which is kind of the end of the Book of Esther, and really ultimately to the Third Temple we have to have this proper perspective of understanding the globe. We really have to understand what's going on in the world so that we can be the right sources of inspiration and influence uh, to help the whole Got world. It. Got it. Who we are, who everybody else is, you know, where the centers of power or negativity lie and what, what to do about it. Yes, Dr. Finkelstein. Oh, I was just thinking how it, it's, it, it goes back to the point you make with frequency about the, role of the Jewish people in cultivating potential talent and agency of all other nations. It reminds me a lot actually of Yosef and his brothers. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and what, what they were built to do, the League of Nations for cultivating the other nations. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully they won't make as big a fuss when we worship at the Temple Mount, so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> 